Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 339th episode of MTG Fast Finance, the podcast that's double foil etched and textured for your listening pleasure. MTG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering finance, collection management, and speculation. I'm your host, James Chilcott, aka at MTG Critic on Twitter. My co host is Derek the Dark Mage at Oko Assassin on Twitter, and we're here to help you folks make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. Hello, everyone. It's been over four months since we've had Streets New Compendus previews, and so I'm really excited to dive into Dominaria United spoilers now that the whole set is revealed. So looking forward to the show, uh, which is produced by mtgprice.com, the leading MTG finance community. Sign up today at mtgprice.com to plan your specs, chat on Discord, and read articles by some of the best financial minds in the hobby. MDG Fast Finance is proudly sponsored by Cool Stuff Inc., where you can find all sorts of cool nerdy stuff in stock, including all the best in Magic the Gathering singles, sealed product, and a plethora of other collectibles. Use the promo code FINANCE5, that's the number 5, during checkout at CoolStuffInc.com to save 5% off your order and support this podcast. Derek, what is on the agenda this week? Well, James, we have our usual four segments, so we're going to kick things off first with a weekend tournament review. After that, we're going to move into our top movers of the week and discuss why we think these cards saw significant gains. Then we're going to talk about our cards to watch, where you and I share our key cards and uh, that we have our eyes on at the moment. And finally, we're going to wrap things up with a special segment with Jason Alt, uh, who's going to walk us through some of the key cards in Dominaria United now that we have the full set revealed. So with that out of the way, James, let's move on to our weekend metagame review. What do we have this week? Modern Challenge from August 28th was most of the usual suspects. Uh, Blue-white Hammer Time in first, four-color Omnath in second, Hammer Time again in fourth, Living End in fifth, Blue-red Merktide in sixth, Creativity Combo continuing to post up results in seventh place, and then a Burn Deck squeaking into the top eight in eighth. Easily the most interesting deck here is one that's been uh, a deck du jour with the streamers lately, including Aspiring Spike and others. It's going by the nom de plume of BR Scam, or Black Red Scam, and it features four Grief and four Fury with a bunch of the black spells that allow you to bring creatures back from the graveyard for one mana if they died this turn. And so the idea here is that you put uh, your uh, Fury or Grief into play for free, let it die, it does its thing, uh, but because it was evoked, uh, it would normally be gone. And then you go ahead and cast one of the black spells and do it again on the same turn. So it could result in your opponent discarding two cards or allowing you to do up to eight damage divided amongst creatures and planeswalkers with fury. Uh, Deck's doing a lot of work lately. Coming seemingly out of nowhere because it's not really the same kind of animal as some of the black red midrange decks we've seen running Season Pyromancer and the like. Yeah, and this is exactly what I think everyone feared when they saw Grief initially. It was that... It was going to come in, it was going to dominate because of the double discard and just wrecking your hand. Uh, and we're starting to see it here, at least in this form for right now, uh, along with Fury. And the nice thing about this deck is that in Fury, if you use two... So there's three different Undying spells uh, for a total of seven copies. Uh, two of them, Undying Evil and Undying Malice, put a 1-1 counter on the creature when it comes back. And so if you do that to Fury, 
You have an 8A double strike, which is important because it's pulling it out of bolt range. Uh, and with that double strike, that's an extra 2 damage. So that's a pretty fast clock if you're being able to connect with Fury. Yeah, and it's interesting because people originally assumed that Ephemerate would be the card, and then people were having trouble p- figuring out the white-black deck that would justify a shell that would justify having these two cards and having other components that would make sense and it turns out you were just supposed to keep playing more black cards alongside grief to make it work you know one card that surprises me here is terminate um it's good to see it's good to see that just a straight kill a creature can't be regenerated for two is good enough these days i'm a little surprised honestly but Glad to see it's in there, and also glad to see Season Pyromancer. I think I mentioned this last week, but one of my pet cards, you know, just straight value. If, if Season the Pyromancer is doing its thing and is good enough, uh, you know, that means I think Modern's in a actually pretty decent place. Uh, because if it, if this format gets a little bit too degenerate, then Season Pyromancer just doesn't have a place. But right now, it seems to be doing work. I'm also curious as to the absence of Unholy Heat in a deck that has six different card types. Yeah, that is a little surprising. I mean, they do have the, and they only have two bolts as well. So it might be that they're just so aggressive between the Furies and the, the Lightning Bolts. They think they can get through without it. I'm looking at the sideboard here. It doesn't look like a lot of direct damage in there either. A couple Fatal Pushes, but uh, no no more bolts or no more uh, no other direct damage spells. I should also correct my earlier analysis when I was saying that this is differentiated from the mid-range decks that were not trying to Malakir Rebirth or Undying Evil or Malice back Fury and Grief uh, as though they couldn't run Season Firemancer. This list actually is kind of a hybrid of the original deck list and, and the scam decks because it is in fact running two Crocs and three Season Firemancer and has four Dothy Voidwalker to boot. So it's kind of got elements uh, of both list styles going for the best of all worlds. Yeah, and Voidwalker is another one that I think everyone thought might do something, kind of came in for a little bit and then left pretty quickly thereafter. But, um, you know, it's a it's a good card in its own right on EDH. Um, and so to get a little bit of modern play, I think is going to just continue to have that card do well. If Modern Horizons 2 wasn't so widely opened, I mean, these cards would be... I can't even imagine the prices. Um, I mean, this whole deck, you got Regavan, Grief, Fury... Voidwalker, um, I'm sure a few others. It's basically a Modern Horizons 2 deck, just like all the others, with some other things thrown in. Now on over to the Pioneer Super Qualifier, a higher tier tournament than the Challenges, uh, also on August 28th. This one was won by Blue-White Control, running three Teferi Hero of Dominaria and three The Wandering Emperor. Wandering Emperor is seeing plenty of play in both Pioneer and Modern and Standard, and could very well be a card that Moving into the second year of its eligibility, uh, I can see this getting pretty pricey in the late next winter, early next spring. So one thing that I was looking at is the release date for the Challenger decks that are going to be, or not, uh, yeah, the Challenger decks for Pioneer. Um, I, I've been kind of thinking about Pioneer specs, but really holding my powder dry on those uh, until those full deck lists are revealed, because they they traditionally have a lot of value. I'm really curious to see if Wandering Emperor gets reprinted there. If not, you know, I think this could get pretty expensive. And there have been instances in the past where a key mythic in the format for either Standard and or Pioneer has shown up in one of those decks, but there's also been times where they just skipped over um, obvious mythics. I would imagine even if Emperor gets 
gets printed in that fashion, it would probably be a one of in the deck. Yep, I would I would think so. They wouldn't want to burn too much equity, but if they do a blue-white control, not having it would be a notable miss. Second place was Red-White Heroic, a deck we've seen in the top four repeatedly last over the last month or so. We've got Lotus Field Combo in third, Mono-White Human still posting up results in Pioneer in fourth, Black-Red Sacrifice in fifth, another blue-white control list in sixth, and then rounding things out, we've got Blue-Red Arclight in seventh, and another Black-Red Midrange list in eighth. So... Relatively stable situation for Pioneer. Plenty of good decks, viable format. Looks healthy, wouldn't you say? Yep, good. And people like it. Uh, yeah, I, I think it's in a great place. I hope Liliana doesn't break it wide open, but I, I'm pretty confident it'll stay like a solid format going forward. If you're looking at these black red mid range lists, like the eighth place uh, deck in the super qualifier, do you think Graveyard Trespasser is the three drop that's going to get kicked out for Lily? Probably, um, you know, that, that three-drop slot is just so competitive, favorable of the Mirror Breakers, seeing play all the way back to Legacy, which means it is clearly the stronger card, generically speaking, at least, uh, likely in this deck as well. And you're also competing somewhat with Bone Crusher Giant. Obviously, you're playing that on two and then playing it on three, uh, but it's still a three-drop in the end. So I think you'd probably boot Trespasser, or maybe, uh, depending on the meta, split copies, do two Lily, two Trespasser if you need the graveyard hate. Yep, that all makes sense to me. All right, let me lead us over to the top paper movers. We'll kick things off with Flusterstorm, the iconic Masters copies going 25 to 29, just 16% gains, but noticeable because I've seen Murktide lists running more and more of this lately and uh, seeing it doing work in Modern, whereas I haven't seen many Flusterstorms cast all that often in that in that format. Uh, so I thought I would... P- put that on people's radar we've also got astral dragon out of uh commander legends battle for Baldur's gate going from four to five fifty only up a dollar fifty there 37.5 percent gains but it's seeing plenty of edh play and it was played against me in the pro trader edh match this last weekend uh it did some funky funky things as it targeted an animate dead and uh things went kind of haywire for a moment while we figured out the rules very very good card that can uh, kind of break a game wide open in the mid to late game in EDH, so I think it's worth watching. Very unique effect. Then we've got Untaidaki, the Cloud Keeper, foils out of Champions of Kamigawa. Oldie but a goodie, 35 to 50. Pretty sure what's moving this is the Joda 5-color decks because they are a Legends Matters deck, and Untaidaki specifically allows you to uh, use the land as a soul ring of sorts when casting Legends. We've also got Tomb of Arami out of Saviors of Kamigawa, I believe, five to eight dollars, and uh, pretty sure that is the non-foils that were on the move. Sixty percent gains there. I've seen the modern scam decks running this as a one of. Do you know what it is that that makes this appealing for them? Because the making the five five demon and sacking all your lands seems rather dangerous in the format. You want this, but you know, I mean, it does close the game if you. If you have them tapped out, it just has always a 5-5 waiting to close that last five points of damage, I guess. TCG player is down to just five listings, less than 10 copies total. Looks like it's headed up over 10 bucks. Moving along, we've got Black Market Connections, the extended art version out of Commander Legends Battle for Baldur's Gate, uh, specifically out of the Collector Boosters, and this has gone from 23 to 35. Uh... 
a powerful and widely played EDH card up 52% here. Surprised to see protection racket largely languishing while this thing takes off. They, to me, they are comparable power levels, but black market connections being part of the party time deck uh, and seeing this kind of price movement suggests to me that the party time deck is going to be very profitable in about a year. Yeah, honestly, when you look through some of these commander decks, you know, it it doesn't make a lot of sense sometimes why one is priced so much higher than the other, even though, you know, they're from the same set or, you know, have a similar power level. I think this one, it, it was identified early and there was a lot of echo chamber about how good it is and how versatile it is. And so I think people are feeding into that, but it is, it's a great card. I mean, it does what you need it to do whenever you need it. It gives you a lot of options. So I get it, but it, it uh, it's climbing faster than I would have anticipated. Also got Graveyard Trespasser, the double feature version, just non-foil going $4 to $6, 50% gains on that standard and pioneer usage. Very curious to see whether these will fall off a cliff if Liliana replaces them. Notable. I did call that one out in one of my articles a couple weeks ago, and it was still at about 250 so making some progress. Nice. Pro- probably time to look for an exit ramp in case Liliana does a uh, displacement effect here. Yeah, yeah, that was before Liliana, of course. <laughs> Zuberi Golden Feather still on the move, 725 to 1150 this week, 60% gains on the back of that new Griffin's Matters commander that is going to be available as a box topper, I believe, with in Dominaria United. And then Teferi, who slows the sunset out of Midnight Hunt, going just regular copies, 425 to 875, 105% gains on the back of the largely green pioneer deck that is using teferi to combo off uh, by getting a chain veil out of the sideboard using karn the great creator and taking infinite turns or something right yeah it, it, and and on top of that one thing that could be accelerating this also is the new uh, lotus from dominaria united because you drop that it comes into play tapped but if you have teferi in play it untaps it you get five mana right away it basically replaces itself and if you get it one more turn i mean you should probably come out ahead or win the game so i think that might be helping push it as well Oh, yeah, because the Teferi combo with Chain Veil is not infinite turns. It's infinite it, mana. Ma- yeah, infinite mana especially. So I think you have to have... Um, so if you have Teferi, you, um, untapping Chain Veil plus mana producing, and you go to town. Uh, I, those lists are right now down to running about two copies, uh, down from three to four when people were testing. But it does. it seems to be the new um, standard version of that deck. Uh, I think people that are playing mono green now are definitely in the minority. Got New Frontiers foils out of Odyssey, 18 to $40, 122% gains. Fairly widely played EDH card in decks where lands matters. And there's several cards in Dominaria United that reinforce those strategies if people are playing Soul of Windgrace or Windgrace, etc. Yeah, it's yeah good card, low stock. Um, so going... 18 to 40 is not too surprising, uh, but be curious to see where it lands in a couple weeks once, you know, a couple more copies flood back onto the market. There's also definitely been a trend line lately of Antiquities cards being targeted in advance of the Brothers War coming out in November this year. Power Leech is the latest victim, going from 35 to 85, 142% gains. Uh, I would not be shy about exiting into a nearly $100 Power Leech if I saw an opportunity. I'm going to have to go check this, my inventory and see if I've got one or two of those lying around. Yeah, I would be exiting at that price, 100%. Now we've got Clouth 
unrivaled ancient foils from uh, Adventures in the Forgotten Realms last summer's D&D set going $20 to $60. This made me want to look up Clouth Extended Arts and see how those are doing. Uh, I believe they exist in just normal, right? They don't have foil versions because it is a commander deck card. Correct. And, and so... There's only 15 lifting, listings right now, so it is very low supply on the extended art. Sorry. Yeah, on, on near mint listings, I'm seeing just 10, and they start yeah. at 38. So I would imagine that... You know, we've seen this with other big dragons like Old Gnawbone from that summer where they have posted up very, very well. And I would imagine there are people that cracked AFR packs and just threw these aside and didn't really think much of them. Time to pull out your clouts. I've seen it cast repeatedly uh, from Ur-Dragon decks lately and a lot of Ur-Dragon getting built this summer with all the dragon support that came out of uh, Battle for Baldur's Gate. And with Clouth being this uh, narrow, just a year out from reprint, this could be years before it sees a reprint of any kind. Yeah, the ex- the rapid acceleration of AFR dragons and just dragons lately in general have been, I think, pretty surprising to me. I think it's it's a mixture of some of these sets not having enough EV to go around, and so it's getting really concentrated in, in these top-heavy dragons. Um, you know, this is just one of numerous examples lately uh the, i think the one i just saw was terror of the peaks extended art foils now are selling for a hundred dollars which is astounding to me and that's an m20 card right? that's yeah that's m20 so m20 had that um you know obviously afr had dragons but i think we've seen three or four sets now with with prominent dragons doing very very well goldspan dragon uh, obviously somewhat on competitive play but i would argue more so uh on recreational in the last six months or so since you know the kind of cycle and rotation have died down and it's coming towards rotating on the standard anyway uh, and it isn't played in pioneer but yeah there's been four four sets or so that have a really good success on dragons and so as we're looking at dominary united uh, you know I, I think i was a little more dismissive of some of the big dragons but as we'll see on some of the EDA trek data i'm sure early results have dragons doing well yet again Finishing things up here, we've got Inspiring Call Foils out of Dragons of Tarkir, and this is a single printing foil. I think it's caught reprints in Commander decks, but never uh, again in foil, and it has no premium version. And surprisingly, this is in 39,000 decks on EDH Rec, which is quite a lot. Uh, Part of that is probably that it was included in a Commander deck, so anybody that registered those bumps up the numbers. But still a very good card in count, plus one, plus one counter decks. Uh, draw a card for each creature you control with a plus one, plus one counter on it. Those creatures gain indestructible until end of turn. Has an Acroma's Will Overrun-esque ability that can help put away games if you're playing something like uh, Attracts the Counters, etc. And there's a whole bunch of other commanders that also operate along similar themes, so... Uh, these have hollowed out. I would imagine you'll see a reprint of this somewhere down the road in foil again. It could show up as a secret layer card at some point um, or show up in a master set as an uncommon. And until then, this looks like there's a very tempting exit for anybody who happens to be holding. Yeah, cards like this, you look at it in the abstract if you're not trying to buy the card and you say, who's going to pay $15, $20 for something like that? And yet just the other day, I spent, I think, $15 on an uncommon or on a common foil. That's a single printing that's pretty new, you know, recent. And it's one of those things where once you need it, 
and you're foiling out your deck, you don't really have a choice. If you want to foil out your deck, this is it. And so, you know, these, I think these prices obviously might come down a little bit, but they'll they'll probably hold. And if it doesn't get to see a reprint for another couple of years, might take another push in a year or two as well. Alrighty, moving over to top Magic Online movers of the week. We've got Dark Boar Pathway out of Keltheim going 4.64 ticks to 7.64, 65% gains. You're thinking this is on the back of Pioneer hype for Liliana? Yeah, I've, several of the pathways that include black mana have seen increases recently, and the pathways are rotating out of standard, uh, which is still played somewhat on, on Magic Online. So I think the only real driver could be Pioneer. Okay. Then we've got Zeator's Proving Ground out of Streets of New Capenna, 1.3 ticks to 2.485% gains. And you're thinking this is rotation and redemption pressure? Yeah, a little bit of rotation redemption, a little bit of interest in Pioneer. Uh, So Streets of New Capenna is up for redemption in a couple months on Magic Online towards the end of October. And when that happens, I think we talked a little bit about this last week, it it essentially forces everything up in price to be somewhat comparable to paper because you can take a copy of Magic Online cards, pay a $25 fee, and get all of those cards in paper in real life. And so if the price gap is too different between the online cards and the digital or the paper cards and the online cards, they have to merge at some point and the paper is not going to come down because obviously that's the bigger market. So the, the online one has to go up. And so we've seen uh, the... EV stay pretty steady, but I think over the next month or so, this will all start going up, and this is part of that. And then, you know, just the standard decks as well will be using uh, these, I, I call them triomes, even though I know they're not called that, uh, the triomes to be their primary mana base going forward, which is also going to help them, uh, at least around the fringes. Fair enough. All right, let's head on over to goblin welder out of c14 uh, i guess being the the last printing 2.6 ticks to 5.4 108 gains and this is on the back of legacy mono red continuing to do pretty well yeah it's the the painter servant list uh, so goblin welder obviously being a critical portion of that uh, and the painter lists are doing well primarily for one reason is that they're running three sometimes four copies of pyroblast and with such a blue heavy meta and legacy, uh, you know, a one mana counter anything or destroy something on the board does pretty well. And so it's having success off and on, uh, particularly playing Fable of the Mirror Breaker and some of the other new cards as well to make it a little bit more consistent and get things into the yard. Pretty probably worth flagging that the Goblin Welder Judge promos look like they're drying up. There's only 10 listings left on TCG Player. They start just under $60, but then ramp pretty hard. There's a wall of 14 of them at 65, and then it jumps up to the high 70s. I could very easily see these ending up being $100 plus Judge uh, foils, say, 12 to 16 months out. Yeah, Legacy players like their bling they like things that shine and uh, obviously if you're playing welder you're playing four because it's a critical component of the deck so it doesn't take much to drain out a few of those copies in the market and set a new plateau for sure they're not super popular they only sell two three times a month on tcg player Um, so you would imagine that the buy listing process could restock at that rate and keep things pretty steady but I would imagine it would be something like if you get a new Brea-style commander, or gee, really, I mean, there's probably going to be five Artifacts Matters commanders in Brothers War. And if one of them or more uh, cares about red cards and Welder doesn't catch another reprint in the commander decks, then you could easily see pressure on all versions. 
in equal measure. Yeah, and I would also say painters in Legacy specifically, it is more popular than it has been in the past. So, you know, if we get a very big Legacy tournament, uh, which is definitely possible next year, that could help push some copies as well. All right, so we can move on over to cards to watch. I'll jump in with my first selection of the week. I'm going to go with a reserve list card. The first time I've done that in a while. Uh, how about Treachery? Treachery is out of Urza's Destiny. It is well over 20 years old. You have 32 listings of this card left on TCG Player, so a relatively healthy amount. These drift in and out of collections all the time. But the ramp on these is very steep. Like there's There are copies under $70 in the $65 range floating about in various markets, but they tend to climb pretty quickly beyond that up into the mid high 70s and 80s and i'm just having trouble imagining how this isn't a future hundred dollar card it was called out on commando this week as being really really good in the new ivy deck that's the green blue fairy commander where if you target another creature with a spell then you copy it and target ivy as well um and so that means treachery's key feature is that it control gains you control of an enchanted creature but also it untaps five of your lands so if you if it gets copied on the stack you're going to untap your lands twice and if you can make use of floating that mana you can do some very nasty things on that turn so it's great in ivy but it's also just a really good card in general because it tends to take control of a creature essentially for free because it gives you all the mana back and if your lands tap for more than one mana you can actually go mana positive with it um so 5,000 decks is all that's reported on EDH Rec, probably because of how long it's been since the card was printed, relatively low profile overall in other formats, basically non-existent, and the price tag on the card being in in the mid-60s minimum. Uh, I don't think this is an immediate thing. I don't think Ivy is going to be a popular enough commander to like drive this hard where you have to rush out and buy treasuries. But I think if you've been holding off getting a treachery for your collection, you may as well snag one now because I could easily see this inching up over the course of the year from Ivy and, and the just general demand for reserve list cards and ending up being a $100 plus card. Yeah, reserve list is solid you know it's obviously down a little bit from where it has been but if you look even at the last reserve list spike this was up to um over a hundred dollars and so it was already at that price point obviously it's plateaued down below that uh but the previous price point in looks like early 2011 was about fifty dollars and so this is um above that you know i expect these trends to continue just like everything else reserve list I will say this might also get pressure from cubes. I'm not sure if it translates, but this is a big card on Magic Online uh, Legacy Cube and I believe Vintage Cube. And I'm curious if others, you know, I've never built a cube myself, but I'd be curious if others include that in there as well. It's a fun card. Um, you know, obviously stealing your opponent's things in cube and elsewhere is always a, an entertaining thing to do. And so it might get additional pressure there. Uh, so yeah, I'm curious, James. What do you think the foil for this card is? Without looking, oh, it's, it's well over a thousand dollars. I've already checked. Okay, yeah, and the last sold was about eight hundred. So yeah, price is pretty real. Yeah, the, the yeah the retail retail is going to be a K plus, and then you're going to negotiate people down on Facebook in the eight to nine hundred range probably. Yeah, Assuming that's... it's mint minty fresh. Right. 
Yeah, that's I like buying reserve list cards when you get a good deal, especially right now. Um, you know, I wouldn't ever pay retail on things like this, or even duels for that matter. There's always deals to be had. You can, you know, usually get um, 10, 15% off. And especially if you trust the person you're dealing with and you buy, you know, maybe a few more copies, you know, get five, six, seven cards that are reserve lift from them. You might even get a little bit more. It's always a good way to, to go about it rather than ordering on TCG player and, you know, quality and, and condition is very important with these sort of reserve list cards for pricing. And so if you can know what you're getting, you're a little bit better off. All right. Tell me about your first uh, selection of the week. Sure. So this is my first uh, foray into uh, Double Masters 2022. For many of those cards, I'm really waiting until they hit their bottom, probably around Christmas. But I was trying to peek around, and uh, both of my selections are actually Double Masters Borderless Foils. And I think both have um, reasons that I think, even if it's not the low right now, I think it's pretty close. Uh, first one being Vidalcan Orrery is only $19 for the Borderless Foil. Uh, and this is a card that's in 26,000 EDA Trek deck, so it's very solid. Um, not extraordinary, but it was also very expensive for the last few years, and so it's something that I think artificially had a, a more limited number of decks just based on the price point. Uh, the art on the borderless version is absolutely spectacular. And for Command Zone, which obviously drives a lot of prices, this is really one of their pet cards that they highlight very very often and so i think it'll be it'll continue to be featured uh which will each each time it is will continue to apply pressure uh and additionally it was down to about 15 dollars for many of the copies being sold even just a few weeks ago so it's up slightly from a low uh whether or not it'll continue to climb or sink back down as tbd but i do think you know it's not going to get much lower and i think long term it's a surefire win i guess the question here is just what at what point are we supposed to jump in on these i suspect that for a lot of the ones that aren't don't have multi-format demand we can probably especially the rares as opposed to the mythics we can probably wait until closer to the holidays for a potential uh lull or just to put our money uh to use elsewhere for a few months and then double back on this stuff i suspect i definitely want to own some of these the the borderless art is fantastic definitely the best art the cards ever had uh, we're at 121 listings. There are no huge, huge walls. Uh, there's a couple, I guess, that are 10 plus, but most of it is uh, is a lot less. There's still enough of this getting opened that, other than our singles buy, where the prices were ridiculously low, um, I've largely been steering clear unless I was buying key foils or and so some such over in Japan. But I think this is good to put on your a post-it note on your desk and say, you know, two, three months from now, when this may have shed another dollar or two, you go ahead and grab it. And if you put it on a weekly watch list and you see that it's starting to tick up, then you can move in earlier and, and lock down some copies. Yeah, I do think it's interesting on some of these, the, this card, the number of foils moving is actually much higher than the non-foils. Um, that's one thing I always check. If I'm buying a premium treatment, you know, I don't want the one that you're selling one foil to every you know nine or ten non-foils and here it really is um, foil selling at a pretty steady clip relative to the non-foils that was one of the things as well that made me feel a little bit more confident uh, but yeah i agree you can you can wait on this uh, i think anytime between now and really january is probably a good entry point just depending on the price and you know how how fluid your finances are if you want to buy and wait for two years i think this is 
very solid. If you have opportunity to flip in the meantime and you're more active, I think there's probably a higher velocity elsewhere. Yeah, and so to be clear, you're you're after the foil borderless here. 74 listings on TCG Player, 16 $17 copies, looking for them to hit 50? Correct. As a rare, as opposed to a mythic, I, I would probably target something more like 35 to 40 but i would love to be proved wrong yeah and again i think going back to the command zone i think that is what i find to be unique about this card i think that every time i tune in i and i'm not even that often watching that but every time i tune in i feel like they're talking about this card um and so you know i think having to bounce back i also assume about uh, double masters is going to bounce back pretty quickly relatively speaking Uh, similar to in the past. So that is an underlying assumption there, which could be proven wrong as well. All right. This next one I think I feel the most strongly about of the week. Uh, Malakir Rebirth Foils. Currently $5, but there's just 21 listings. No major walls. MTG Mint Card has eight copies at six bucks plus 79 cents shipping. And then you got a wall. One of the pro traders has 30 copies at 10 bucks, and a couple of other recognizable people up in the $10 range. Malachi Rebirth is in 71,000 EDH rec decks. So even putting aside the usage in the black red scam uh, archetype in modern, where it's played as a two or a three of, this is a very popular card. It's also a single printing in foil and going to be very hard for wizards to reprint i don't see this fitting thematically in a secret layer very easily and i don't see it being high on their uh priority reprints in any of the sets that have been announced for 2023 so this could easily run hard for another two or three years minimum and end up being a 20 dollars plus foil i'm going to play it a little conservative here and call 5 to 12 in the next six months what say you I'm trying to look up what the comparables are from Zendikar Rising um, for the lands that are utility, just because I think those are pretty comparable. Well, I do that. But yeah, in general, I think this is great. Uh, the reprintability, I think it could be absolutely in a Pioneer Challenger deck, but if it is, it's going to be a uh, non-foil. non-foil, which is you know just going to accelerate this. I think even if it's temporary, it'll create a little bit of a hype, bump it up. Uh, I, $12 maybe... Just a shy high. I think that $10 mark might be a little bit of a mental barrier. Uh, people might not want to go over it. But doing a quick double up, especially if you can flip it to a buy list. Um, How is buy list support for this currently? Did you look? I would imagine it's pretty weak, given that it's a it's a foil that's only recently got onto the competitive radar. Card Kingdom usually takes some time to catch up on such things. But I did notice that there are less copies uh, of this available on TCG Player than there are of the second most popular uh, of these Endicar Rising cards, which is Agadim's Awakening. That has 241 listings as a mythic, whereas Malakir Rebirth only has 176, uh, including all non-foils as an uncommon and it's also the third rated best-selling card from this set after Seagate Restoration and Agadims, followed by Omnath and Balak Get Recovery, all of which are cards with very solid pedigrees. Yeah, and Zend- you know, Zendikar Rising used to be such a, oh, there's so much supply, and like everything else, eventually it all drains. For the cards that matter, uh, you start to 
hit a wall and, and have uh, prices go up. We're starting to see it, which is good to see because, I mean, what was the release date on that? A couple years ago now? Yeah, basically two years ago. Yeah, so it's about time. Uh, so we'll I think we'll see more and more from that set that seemed obvious and then kept you know, sinking because of a glut of supply start to pick up and climb uh, with this being one that looks like it's already on the rise. I will say the Card Kingdom has copies for... Um, four dollars which is solid and that's a that's one i might snap off right before we end this cast <laughs> all right so tell me about your second selection so the other one so this again is from double masters 2022 uh is alisor shepherd and again i was trying to look at double masters cards and thinking okay wh- what's different about these than the whole set because i think the set as a whole again will continue to slow glide down with some pressure until the end of the year um and again on this one too i don't think it's a huge rush but alisor shepherd is a tremendous card and one of the things that was holding it back for a long time is that it was just too expensive uh and so people weren't including a index because they didn't have access to it it was too expensive to try out uh and now it is not and so the edh rec numbers even with that barrier is at nineteen thousand decks and I think now that it's a little bit more affordable and it is a mythic, uh, so I think you know, going back to our conversation about trajectory, uh, it's not going to slam down, I don't think, too much further. Uh, we've seen the jumpstart copies basically align with the double masters copies. So they were um, crashing, 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 and now both have been holding steady right around for uh, for the basic version, about $28 roughly. Uh, and so for the borderless, it's a little bit more for the regular version. And for the foil, it's right now at $45 a piece. I have a hard time believing that this gets under 40 35 at the very least, but even that, you know, I think that's getting pretty low for the, a really premier card. I think that'll see a lot of play going forward. And so I'm looking to buy in on these at 45, which is the current price, with the trajectory to go up to about 80 uh, in a year, year and a half, roughly. I hate the art on the borderless Allosaurus Shepherd. Uh, it's real wonky. But uh, I don't think the original art is beloved in, in, in by any means. And the bottom line is, if you're playing an elf deck, this is going to be included because it can't be countered. It makes other green spells you control not be able to be countered, and it provides that game-ending overrun style effect once you get to the right amount of mana, which is something elf ball decks can typically do pretty easily once they get rolling. So we're looking at, you know, this one is a uh, mythic as opposed to a rare, uh, like Videlic and Ori, and we're down to 56 listings. You've got low $40 copies. You're saying getting to 80. I could certainly see it getting 60 to 80 within the year, and I'm hoping to hold out as long as I can before jumping in on this. But because it's a mythic, I probably don't want to wait as long as I do with Ori. It's also got chop, unlike Ori, it also has chops in other formats because this sees play in Legacy at minimum. Correct. It sees plays in Legacy Elves in particular, but also in, in just uh, value shells to give creatures like Primetime uncounterability. Gotcha. Okay, so yeah, I think this is pretty solid. I'm not sure about when exactly we want to jump in, but you've given people plenty of leeway there with the 12 to 18 month time horizon and 20k EDH rack is nothing to sneeze at either. So pretty solid pick there, I think. Thanks. How about you, James? What's your next pick? 
My final card to watch of the week is Hall of Storm Giants, the dungeon module foils out of Adventures in the Forgotten Realms. This is a year old, and the card is all over the place in Pioneer and Modern Blue-White Control Shells, or Blue-White X, uh, occasionally. It's in also in 7,500 decks on EDH Rec. I don't see this as being a card they are likely to reprint anytime soon. It was just printed a year ago. It's already got two versions. Don't think it's going to be a target for secret layers. Uh, I could see this being the kind of card that goes unprinted for three, five, seven, a decade. Like, it's just doesn't seem like it's likely to be a priority for quite some time and these are currently available under six dollars in some circumstances probably plan to pay 650 to seven if you're grabbing them off tcg player and i would imagine that given a year or so these are going to get up to 15 just on the back of the control players wanting copies for their what has been a very steady archetype in modern for many months now you know, Blue-White Control was basically knocked out of the format for years, but has made a serious comeback with all of the toys they've gotten to play with over the last three years or so. Yeah, I, I play Blue-White Control in, I guess, Explore, which isn't really a real format, Pioneer, and when I can in Modern, when it's a reasonable deck. Uh, and this is a back-breaking card to your opponent. As long as you stabilize, uh, this is what wins you the game more often than not. And so it is absolutely critical. Uh, usually it's played as a one-of, but I've seen it played as a two-of. And in, in particular in the Mirror, it is the um, the most important card, I would say, in kind of making sure that you're able to get in. Uh, and, you know, in the Mirror, you're able to get this in once or twice. You can pretty much end the game. So I was looking through the supply, and one of the, the things I always look at is how many have four copies um, and it's not many. And so I think this is really on track. I looked at, for example, at other dungeon cards, um, some of the dungeon lands, including like Treasure Vault, which has uh, even a bigger profile in EDH. And there's a lot more copies floating out there, including walls of over 40 copies. And so um, seeing Hall of Storm Giants doing better than that in, in terms of supplies, I think really bodes well for the pick. Uh, so I, th I think, and the art, and this is a dungeon module version, correct? You Correct. Yeah, and that art, I mean, even if they reprint it in a Challenger deck, it's going to be the basic version, uh, and it's definitely not, not going to be foil, not going to be this alternative art. So I think it'll just continue to push, uh, assuming it doesn't fall out to the meta, like um, you know, Celestial Colonnade was, was the similar kind of card back in the day, and obviously that uh, is no longer the case. And so things can change, but uh, this is a, a very, very good card, and having to come in untapped, uh, early on in the game is obviously pretty important. A good comparable is the even more played Den of the Bugbear dungeon module, and those are up to 14 or $15 already with just 26 listings left, and I suspect that they're going to drain up over 25 um, over the course of the next 6 to 12 months as well. I think it may have been a pick on this cast in the last six months or so, and probably going to be a successful one from everything I'm looking at. So are you a fan of the dungeon module art in general not this specific card but overall i'm a d i'm a D, D dm i don't go back that far with the game but i do respect the art style of that era as being very kind of uh specific and so yeah i i like to look at them i like the bold bold background colors and uh, I think that the sales pattern on these proves that enough people also enjoy them as upgrades to the default version that uh, they're both going to get there. 
Yeah, I, I hate them, but that is, I think, a good thing in that they're unique. If I hate them, polarized art means somebody else is going to love them. Uh, they were created for somebody else, and that is just fine by me. Um, and yeah, I do think somebody's, uh, clearly people are enjoying these because they, they keep going up in price. Um, I remember seeing the Den of the Bugbear one I don't know, when it came out. I bought non-foil copies for, I think, 2 or $3, which are now selling for 10 even after a reprint. Uh, and I made out like a bandit, but I looked at these and I said, eh, that art, I don't know, I can't do it. And missed out on that one. Should have pulled the trigger. Unique is always good for the most part. Fair enough. Let's uh, slide on over and grab our, grab our friend Jason uh, E. Alt and have a little chat about Dominaria United, the forthcoming standard set. Welcome back, Jason E. Alt, Commander-in-Chief. How goes it over in the world of a young man from Michigan that recently went to Seattle. I mean, when you sum my life up like that, it sounds pretty sweet. Yeah, it's like you're on adventures, you got side quests, you're eating bubble tea. Yeah. On the Pacific Ocean coast. That's right. It was weeks ago, but I haven't been back because they decided not to release a new set every month. And so it's it's been a while. I've been looking at real estate in your neck of the woods because uh, all the doomsayers say that Michigan's going to be the place to be when the rest of the world falls apart in 20 years. Yeah, I'm in Kalamazoo, which is like, you know, maybe 50 miles away from Lake Michigan. So I'm pretty sure my neighborhood's going to be lakefront property <laughs> when the oceans rise a foot. Or more. Well, no, I, I mean, mean, there's a there's a, a glacier that... They said it's basically dead ice because it's not being fed anymore, and it's basically inevitably all going to melt, and it's enough ice to give us a 10-inch rise. But, oh, yeah, the zombie ice. Yeah. <laughs> right, right, right. But uh, Exxon did very well over the summer <laughs> by raising gas prices. So They did indeed. Yeah, so like 40 people got a yacht. So, I mean, it, it sucks that. Billions of people will starve in a hundred years, but it's a really nice yacht. I feel like it's harder to focus. I think there's just so many little cuts caused by the pandemic and that sort of thing that I just feel like everybody I talk to is really struggling with executive dysfunction, except the people at Wizards of the Coast who are in charge of making 70 new legendary creatures every two months. <laughs> Nothing like going back to Dominaria to boot up the legends. 30 in the pre-cons, 40 in the main set. It's it's untenable. It took them until 1998 to make 40 legendary creatures. And I really don't think we're going to have a dearth of legends when we get to the Brothers War either. Right? <laughs> At least they're so, all like just reskins of existing legends. Like it's just minor, especially the uncommon ones, just minor tweaks. I, I'm, I don't know. I'm in favor of people feeling like they got to build new decks, I guess. But like, I can't even look at this set. I have eight Street Fighter decks to build before I do anything. <laughs> Funny thing is, this this set actually looks, you know, unsurprisingly a lot more exciting for EDH overall than it does for, say, Modern or Legacy. And Pioneer is going to get some pretty good, some goodies here, um, of course, with the Liliana of the Veil vale reprint. But uh, we'll try to strike off the competitive stuff quickly. And get some thoughts from Ogo, who's more of a specialist in that area. Then we'll do a little bit of a deeper dive on the EDH side. Well, this is so basically modern... the Commander Legends set everybody wanted, if you look at it. 
<laughs> Commander Legends yeah. was like Return to Baldur's Gate or whatever, but like this set actually, if you wanted Commander Legends, this is going to do it for you. Yeah, they they're following up Dragon Dragon Legends with an an actual CMR two. Now over in Modern, the only card that I really see people feeling pretty confident about is Leyline Binding as yet another. Uh, white removal spell that seems likely to see a lot of play keep in mind this is on the tales of just in the last year prismatic ending out of mh2 and then march of otherworldly light out of neon dynasty and now we have a six mana enchantment that if you drop two triomes on turns one and two you can cast for one to get rid of anything triomes seem real doable in a format with fetch lands yep Oko, you said you think Leyline Leyline Binding is going to see blue white control play. So I don't think as I think it will see some blue white control play. There was already some play back, you know, a few years ago of the four mana instant uh, that cycled, but this is so much better in particular for uh, cascade decks that need to skirt the you know rule of having two or less converted mana value. This puts you at um, you know, essentially never getting hit by Cascade, but you're able to typically cast it for one to two mana. And so it's able to hit things that the decks couldn't handle before. Um, and so it should slide right in there as a two to four copies uh, right off the bat. And, you know, those decks have been struggling as of late, so they really do need new tools to accelerate. Other than that, um, you know, I think when you start getting it costing three to four mana, there's Usually better options, particularly uh, Otherworldly Light hits most things, not all, um, specifically Planeswalkers, uh, but it is a little bit more flexible and hits Urza Saga, which this does not. Gotcha. So beyond that, I think it falls off a cliff pretty quickly. There's a bunch of, I think, fringe or sideboard playable cards for the most part. The three tribal lords are all pretty exciting in their respective tribes. We've got an elf lord, a merfolk lord, and a goblin lord, all of which are great in their respective decks, but there seems to be a lot of doubt as to whether this can actually push any of those decks up into top eight status as opposed to just giving them additional tools for FNM play. Didn't a Merfolk deck recently top eight something? Merfolk's always top eighting something, I feel like. Yeah, it's uh, so some people will never stop playing it. It's yeah, a... exactly. Uh, the same with Goblins, honestly. When you when you go to paper tournaments, you know, decks like Merfolk and decks like Goblins show up a lot more because they're the decks people have. And so I think this will impact more of the paper scene than the Magic Online scene, just because Magic Online is really geared towards grinders who are going to play the absolute best deck um, and usually you can find something they like within that, that metagame. Uh, but, you know, the, the Goblin one, the Merfolk, I think in particular for Modern, will do pretty well. Uh, the Merfolk one might even see play back to Legacy. Uh, again, people will play Merfolk. Uh, Merfolk does well in Legacy tournaments every once in a while, too. Uh, but it probably won't do well or anything in Pioneer. Um the elves at least deck, for now for at least for now and then you know we might get to ixalan uh, revisited or i can't remember the actual set name uh, but maybe they insert a bunch of these tribes and that actually becomes a pioneer staple there too we'll see yeah and that's on track for the brothers war slot the following year so in november of 2023 we're headed back to ixalan and presumably getting more merfolk i think rundvault horde master the goblin lord that's two for uh, other goblins you control get plus one plus one. It's a one one itself. And then if it or another goblin you control dies, you exile the top card of your library. And if it's a goblin creature card, you may cast that card until the end of your next turn. 
we think that's going to see play all the way back to legacy, right? Absolutely. And Skirk Prospector in particular is what you're looking at here, where you're sacking the goblin, you're getting mana off it, and you're drawing a card, essentially. Uh, you know, you start chaining those together. Pretty powerful, and I don't know if you noticed, but it says until your next turn. So even if you fizzle, or you hit, you know, a Muxus in Legacy, and it's five or six mana and you have to wait, you can do it the next turn and still go off, assuming you're still alive. Right. And then Leaf Crown Visionary is two mana for a 1-1 Elf Druid. Other elves you control get plus one plus one. And whenever you cast an elf spell, you may pay a green if you do draw a card. Very, very powerful against control or mid-range strategies that are trying to get rid of your key elves to basically tap elves for mana or tap your lands and refill your hand uh, in response to them killing things off. So, which one are you talking about, James? I'm trying to look Le- it up Leaf crowned Visionary. Uh, yeah, I mean, so in Modern in particular, it, it gives you a little bit more flexibility um, to draw cards and kind of, you, know, you get a lot of these creatures that, you know, you want to be able to draw cards off of, you're getting a ton of mana, but you don't have anywhere to go. This gives you something to do. And you pair it with all the tools it's gotten recently, pretty solid. Um, but even dating back again to Legacy... I, I think this will probably fit in at least as a one of just because it gives you a little versatility. You can find it off of your search uh, and, you know, you might be able to use that there, but it would, wouldn't be a ton. But in modern, I mean, that deck's always been pretty close and it, it keeps getting new tools. And again, if we you know get one more tribal set, it could really push it over the edge in some of these other formats. I think I've got all three of these flagged due to multi-format and casual and cube play as being potential bricks, both in the regular versions and also foil extended art and potentially extended art versions that will be targeted by competitive players. Um, they just, these are just some of the best lords they've ever given us in these tribes. They're all two mana. They all have very relevant kind of tuned abilities for the decks that they are meant to be included in. A lot of thought went into these designs, and I think that is going to pay off, you know, a few years down the road when they've had some time to settle. It is interesting that the Elf Lord is double green when I think the others are all single pip plus one generic, correct? Probably on the basis that they expect the green deck to be able to handle it pretty easily, especially since the other, the tacked on ability requires green mana to activate. Yeah, I think, I think it's I think that one's powerful, and they they maybe put that in there to limit it a little bit, um, because otherwise, I mean, I'm not sure it makes sense to to have it be double green otherwise, and so it might be more pushed than you think, or you know, they were trying to tame it back because a lot of the elves builds are two color, um, obviously, you know, green black, plain, you mean green black in particular, but sometimes others, um, and so that's something where I think they might have put that in there on purpose just to give it little bit more restraint uh, compared to the other lords. So one of the interesting sideboard cards that's been flagged for, I guess, both Pioneer and Modern and may in fact do more work in, in Pioneer than Modern just because of the lower overall power level in the format is Karn Silex. This is a legendary artifact for three mana, enters the battlefield tapped, but players can't pay life to cast spells or to activate abilities that aren't mana abilities. And for X and a tap, you can exile the Silex and then destroy each non-land permanent with mana value X or less. Especially sexy if you're running Karn the Great Creator and you can go grab this out of the board for the massive flavor win. Yeah, and the question is whether or not you'll have time to do any of that, right? So if you're dropping Karn on four, you're pulling this out, you're playing it, it comes into play tapped. 
and then you're having to activate it as well. That's a lot of turns taking off. And so, you know, I'm not sure. Uh, I think the the idea of shutting off fetch lands is pretty interesting, but obviously that's only a thing in modern, and you know, modern is obviously much less forgiving. So uh, we'll see. I would love to see this come in on turn two after a one mana accelerant, um, and you know, shut your opponents down. They can't thought seize you. They can't uh, crack their fetch lands. But at the same time, the the other ability of Karn Silex, if you're using a one mana accelerant and then you're blowing up the board, you're killing your own accelerants. So it's a little bit of a wombo combo there. The other note of caution on this card is that they've upgraded, updated the templating from the days of Pernicious Deed. Whereas, you know, if you're playing a bunch of Planeswalkers, you can drop a Pernicious Deed into your Atraxa deck in EDH. And it's only going to kill artifacts, creatures, and enchantments with a converted mana cost X or less because they didn't have Planeswalkers included in the templating when that card was originally designed. But this one has been updated to be non-land permanence. So if you were running Planeswalkers alongside Karn, you may end up killing them as part of the activation. Yep, that's true. And and in modern, I would say, I mean, you have Oblivion Stone. So uh, for the for the wishboard, which you know, I think this would probably see play in Tron for for the most part. And so, you know, when is this better than Oblivion Stone, uh, which also can protect it, your own things by you know if you have the time to put on counters. So not sure. I, I you know, I, at first I saw it, I saw this, and I, I was excited by it. I thought it was an interesting design. The more I think about it, the less I think it'll see play, but I'd love to be surprised. If this scene play, I think that's a good thing. All right. We've also got... I, I saw Aspiring Spike mention in his video on potential modern cards of the format that he thought Soul of Windgrace might see some play in Jund builds. Um, his argument was that when you're running a deck that has kind of a lands, matters, or graveyard recursion themed, just from the virtue of running Renin 6, that a card like Soul of Windgrace might be good enough to see play as a one or a two of in that deck. you have any thoughts on that, Oka? I, I don't believe it, personally. Uh, four mana, do nothing until your next turn usually doesn't make the cut. Uh, if this came in and... I mean, it does come in and, and get a, a land from the yard. If you're bringing in an Urza Saga, I guess that's pretty powerful, um, that's that's I guess the use case I could see is if you're playing Jund, you have Urza Saga, you're bringing one back from the yard after making a couple constructs. I guess that's pretty good, but even if it's seen play, yeah, I think it's a one of. It's really about pitching lands from Renin Six that you know you're you're pulling back every turn and drawing a card, but even then you're investing a couple mana into it every turn, so it is slow. Um, yeah, I I I think it'll see play for the first three weeks when people are testing and it'll fade away personally i'm reminded of savage knuckle blade yeah sure, sure. which seemed uh, amazing right and then just fell off the face of the planet the the other card that's got my attention is temporary lockdown this is an enchantment one double white whenever it enters the battlefield exile each non-land permanent with mana value two or less until it leaves the battlefield against very low slung fast decks in both pioneer and modern i could see this coming out of the board and doing some work presenting them with an enchantment that they just have no answer to that has taken out two or three cards yeah we talked about this a little bit last week and it's grown on me since then you know being able to hit the boros type of aggro builds either um, prowess in modern or in pioneer the 
uh, target your own creatures and get counters deck. Uh, either of those, this wipes their board completely. And even if they can bring it back, I mean, you're really trying to just buy get time. If you get time, a couple extra turns out of this, it's really done its job, even if they're somehow able to destroy it at some point. So I, I, the more I, I think about it, the more I like it, but it really is situationally dependent. There's a couple, a few other decks that look very vulnerable to this. I mean, if we're talking about people coming back to to the table, experimenting with goblins, elves, and or merfolk, all of all of the above could be uh, in trouble if this hits the table. Of course, the blue uh, merfolk lord, in particular, provides some protection against lockdown in the sense that it has flash and can come down and sack merfolk to make sure this doesn't actually hit. Uh, that's that's uh, something worth noting. And then the other deck that looks very vulnerable to this is Blue-White Hammer Time. This looks like it does tons of work against them. Yeah, and it takes out Urza's Constructs, which is important. Um, you know, I think the one thing I'd worry about is if you're playing against anything green or blue about bouncing, uh, being able to bounce this end a turn and then, you know, take your next turn and just kill off of that with uh, either land that bounces or Besaju to blow it up. Um, either of those scare me a little bit more, but when you're playing against the more aggro builds, they don't really usually have that sideboard tech to take out things like this. I could also see this being good to get rid of the tokens that Creativity Combo is planning on turning into monsters the turn after. Um, but against some of the other decks, like, say, Living End or Four Color Omnath, uh, this is going to be next to useless. Yeah, so definitely sideboard. Keep one or two around. Um, obviously, a lot of decks that would play this also have Wraths at turn four, and so it's that balancing act between having something like this that can hit non-creatures, um, you know, and be come down a turn earlier, but is subject to removal versus something like a Supreme Verdict. So you wanted to chat about founding the third path. Yeah, so this is essentially Snapcaster Mage, but is spread out over two turns in a lot of ways and no body. Um, that's the way I like to think about it. So this is, let me read it out here. So um, so it's, it's a read ahead saga. So the first is you cast an instant sorcery spell from your hand for a converted mana cost of one or two without paying its mana value. So right away you can recover the two mana you invested in the saga if you want. Uh, but you can also read ahead to one of the other stages. Stage two is target player mills four cards. That is, I think, generally only useful to fill up your own graveyard. You're not going to play this something like mill. And then stage three is you are exiling target instant or sorcery from your graveyard, copy it, and cast that copy. And so for two mana, you could be casting something pretty powerful in the graveyard. But I think more often than not, you're going to be using this to cast... Um, a reasonable spell you know something that you've already been playing otherwise you're not going to try to combo out with this uh, but it's providing a lot of value so you're getting free repeat at the beginning you're casting it at the end uh, and it does remind me a little bit of snapcaster where you know you're getting a lot of value for two mana in a slot that you know you're not doing a lot otherwise in a, in a lot of these decks and so you can also use this to cast things from your hand that might be stuck uh, because of one thing or another. So remember, if you, you have a suspend card or something like that, you can get around that. Uh... Actually, uh, no, I take that back. You can't get around it because it's one or two. They did craft it that way. Um, so good on them. Good on them. I'm not going to lie. But either way, I think this is powerful. I think it's a unique effect. Uh, you got to not care about the body. Uh, but in Pioneer, you don't have snapcaster around so this does you know a good job imitating that their card draw is a little bit iffy uh but you know they do have a lot of things at one or two and that you could throw something big in the graveyard to copy 
to to make it a little bit more powerful on stage three. So I think it has potential. It'll all depend on crafting. You'd have to really build around this to make it worthwhile inclusion. Uh, it's also an enchantment. So if you get into the yard, if you care about uh, diversifying your graveyard, it does that as well. There's also a potential use case here in Pioneer and or Modern on the fringes as pertains to reanimation strategies. Because if you skip ahead to the second chapter and mill, then the next turn you may be looking to, quote unquote, flash back a reanimation spell and and go off in that way. So I think it's a pretty flexible spell. Um, I'm curious whether it's brickable as an uncommon or not. I would want to see it prove itself. Um, yes. You know, it's one of those things where it, it might not see play for six months and then somebody finds the right combination of versatility and powerful spells in the yard and it just blasts off. Um, that you know, th- Things like this are hard to figure out and I think it might say, take some time. If I had to guess, it will see solid play in Standard, some play in Pioneer, one of the things in a blue-white control strategy in Pioneer that might be beneficial here is that because March could be cast for free from hand by discarding a white card, for instance, you could potentially go March and then turn after March off the back of this with it with still only cast only paying two mana. So there is some flexibility there that I think is important. So a, a card to watch, uh, even if it is just an uncommon. Right. Moving over to Pioneer, I think we're all agreed that the most most impactful card there has to be Liliana of the Veil, the reprint that has been clearly planted in this set to post up in that format. 100%. And black decks were already doing extremely well. Thoughtseize is a very good card, uh, and there's a lot of a lot of tools built around it. Rakdos and other, and other builds that are just dominating right now. They're clearly tier 1 or tier S. And so having Lily step in and provide, a, I think, an upgrade in the 3-mana slot should do really good things. Um, that said, you know you usually have a domino effect, right? So if Lily is good, it t- turns other decks into different ways. Uh, and so it will probably shake up the format overall, I would think, to a large extent. What about Sarah Paragon? I love this card for EDH. I think it's in my top three mythics in the set for sure. Um, You think there's going to be some play for Pioneer here as well? I think it has the potential, but it needs to find a home. Um, the, the, The challenge I have with this is that it is going to require surviving or just jamming it and hoping it lives uh, because you're not going to be able to really accrue value because you don't have fetch lands and so you can't get a a land out of the yard uh and so you're going to have to slam it on four hope it lives and then play something on turn five uh and if you look at the mono white deck that's dominating pioneer right now the highest convert amount of value in it currently is three and so this would be increasing the curve and so i think it really is probably a a slightly different build a more grindy build a build that goes over the top the current one um and you know i am i confident that it'll be included or you know succeed no but i I think it has a potential anything that can reoccur um you know things from your graveyard and bring back say an extraction specialist which then brings back another thing uh and just has a snowball turn like that that you know just lets you go off as something you can't count out but i i'm not confident it'll succeed by any means what about urborg lurgoif the poor man's tarmogoyf you think uh this might show up as a mid-range creature for pioneer isn't tarmogoyf the poor man's tarmogoyf now 
<laughs> well, it's it's the poor Tarmogoy for any man, apparently. So current, fiend, per, current pricing. Yeah, fiend artisan is uh, basically an all around better version of this card in most ways. So it is still plus one one for each creature in your graveyard. It's a one one. Uh, rather than an X1. And if you um, pay some mana, you can search for a creature in your library after sacking another. And so it is more versatile. It is. It doesn't, you know, obviously have the kicker to fill your yard, but if you're waiting to put down your vanilla 2-2 until later in the game anyway, I think you're going to have bigger problems. So my expectation is it won't do anything in Pioneer, but might be a standout and standard in various ways. Do you think that those two cards reinforce each other in any way as part of a, a, a strategy that that could take off due to sin, newfound synergy? Potentially. Um, you're putting a lot of eggs in the I'm just going to attack through things basket. So, And Fiend Artisan isn't seen play, so you'd really have to form a new green-black rock type of synergy to make it happen. Um, I don't think so. I don't think having a dirtily big creature on the ground is, is all that useful when you have um, a deck like Mono Green that probably does it better and then also has the combo potential with Teferi. Sure. How about Joint Exploration, this new sneaky Growth Spiral-esque card? So I had this to is... look it up. I knew of it, but I hadn't really thought it too much through. Um, Growth Spiral is very good. This does a pretty good impression of it for three rather than two. isn't it? So yeah, you have to kick it to put the land into play, but it's an instant speed. Anything that's instant and puts land into play, I think is um, it has potential. I'm trying to think what build is blue-green that would want to run this right now. I guess would that be um, uh, Lotus Field? potentially yeah maybe lotus field scry two then draw a card for one and a blue if the spell was kicked which means you paid one green more you may put a land from your hand onto the battlefield scry two draw a card combo and control strategies seems like this could find a home i could very easily see this being fairly dominant and standard if it has the right shell yeah standard definitely pioneer would just need a home i think but if it had one it would do well the equivalent is the enchantment that um came into play you scry two draw a card and then you could also sack it for two and a blue to scry two again uh that you used to be able to flicker with urion that saw a lot of play for a long time this is very similar to that uh in the terms of the the draw feature so the base of it's good, and then you add in the, the potential for land acceleration, all the better. So definitely is a shot, but needs a right shell, I think, outside of standard. What's got you thinking that the Raven Man will show up in Pioneer? So that is a combo with Liliana. So it was, I think, it intentionally designed to enhance Liliana, uh, maybe pointing out that Liliana isn't as good as we all hope. Uh, but so Raven Man comes down on two. Let me pull up the actual text so I can... Read it out here, but it's a 2-1. At the beginning of each end step, if a player discarded a card this turn, create a 1-1 black bird creature token with flying, and this creature can't block. And then for three and a black and a tap, each opponent discards card, activate only as a sorcery. Right, so turn one, you thought seize or something else. You turn two, you play Raven Man. Turn three, Liliana tick up, and all of a sudden you have a 1-1. And it does a good impression of um, Bitter Blossom in a lot of ways. And so I think they were really made to be together. Obviously, Raven Man is connected in lore with Liliana. 
although I'm not a big fan of that, so I couldn't really speak to it, but I do know this. Um, so I think it's an instant include if that deck works. Um, if, it, if Raven Man, I mean, 2-1 that makes birds seems solid, but these days power level's so high, I don't even know if it's good enough, honestly. Uh, but I, I think it'll probably see play. It is limited because it's a legendary creature, so you can't just jam four of these and expect it to always work out. Uh, probably more of a one to two, maybe three copies. Um, but we'll see. But I, I do expect that to at least be tested, and if it if it does well, uh, it'll stick around. Not to spoil any lore, but there's just it blew, blows my mind who this character actually is when it absolutely looks just looks like evil Urza. Yeah, it it absolutely does. <laughs> I, I don't I don't understand why this character looks like that. If if the revealed newly revealed secret identity of the Raven Man is as it is, anyway, uh, temporary lockdown probably even more likely to see play in Pioneer. Yeah, I think so. Um, you know the the curve is lower and the the um, things to hit it are are less. Uh, powerful so you still have march but that you'd have to pay four to blow it up uh, which is getting pretty late for an aggro deck and then um you know like we talked about the uh prowess type of builds are much more prevalent pioneer right now than they are in modern which just gives us a lot more targets both the mono white humans and right red white heroic lists look like they're vulnerable to this card and yeah uh, what about cut down the one mana uh, black instant that takes care of a creature if it has power and toughness combined no greater than five? I think it's a trap, honestly. Uh, most of the things that you want to kill with this, at least in Pioneer, can grow and can grow quickly. And um, five is, if it was six, I think that'd be a little different. But five or less, I mean, it doesn't hit a lot of the things you want to hit. And um, there's a lot of tricks that you can play that will um, blow you out with this card. So maybe decent as a sideboard, you know, one or two of in the right thing. But generally speaking, with Fatal Push in the, the format, I think you have usually better options. Fatal Push is just a safer card to run that's going to have broader applicability. Alrighty, Jason, you've been very patient. <laughs> what is what is your favorite EDH card out of Dominaria United? You know I used to be good at competitive magic, right? Yeah. <laughs> I don't think anybody cares that I used to be good at it, but like... <laughs> And I like it would require me like paying attention to Pioneer or, or knowing what Pioneer is now. So um Yeah. Knowing which 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 uh sets were included in the format. Everything you both said sounded smart to me. And that's fair if, enough. That's what you If you were to go to a tournament, is that legacy then for you since you've played a long time ago or Oh yeah, probably a legacy because I could you know I heard Maverick is back from the dead. What? Yeah, it's doing all right. What did that? Was a Ma- Drenith Magistrate or something goofy like that? Or yeah, it comes and goes. Every every two or three months, something pops up. It does well, and then it fades away. So you know, it's always the flavor of the day. That's what I want to do. I want to strike hard and then retreat. <laughs> so the top card according to your website, EDH Rec, uh, most played by report so far is plaza of heroes which does not surprise me this land is so bonkers taps for colorless or taps for one mana of any color but only on a legendary spell or add one one mana of any color among legendary permanents you control so if you already have legends in play including planeswalkers and such then you can borrow their colors 
or three tap exile plaza of heroes target legendary creature gains hexproof and indestructible so you get a little mini heroic intervention on a multicolored land everybody thinks oh it's it's like uh, command tower but better but if you have like something like Najila, that's a red creature with five colors of activation and you have like a five color Najila deck this taps for red so I think a yeah. lot of people think this card's better than it is. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if it like gets played in some decks, but I don't think it's going to be a format staple. I think people it's like it's like a three, four, it. and five color deck staple. Sure, and like they already had enough ten dollar lands you could buy. Right, like I, I don't mean to be a downer, but like I think anytime a card's overrated to me, I tend to underrate it just as like. <laughs> as a reaction to it i think all the top cards are it seems that the ones have been spoiled the longest are doing the best and i i think that makes sense um so i think i think plaza's fine but i i don't like it at eight bucks on tcg player certainly i think it's gonna fade and get get cheaper and then be probably be brickable i mean 12 of the top 20 most played most built commanders right now according to edh rec are three colors or more um, and there are multiple four color and five color including atraxa the ur dragon goshintai uh, etc omnath and all them so yeah i mean this i agree that one and two color decks don't really seem to need the card um but the, the fact that they gave it that extra text, giving the mini heroic intervention for no reason whatsoever, uh, leads me to believe that players will like the card and will purchase it for decks and put it into a whole bunch of decks. Yeah, EDH Rec doesn't care if people actually play the card. They care if they register it on, you know, Architect or something like that, or if they buy it using our affiliate link. Which you can do at EDHREC.com. No, I'm just kidding. Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> I think people are more people have heard of EDHREC than me. Like, EDHREC should be pitching yeah. me to people. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, do you think that there is a mythic more likely to see uh, more play than Shieldra the Apocalypse long term out of this set? Vesuvian Duplomancy. Ooh. Now, everybody overrated pick. that bad zombie parallel lives ne necro duality yeah if you say so i don't know what the card's name is anymore because i've never seen anybody play it this is i think this is better than it seems and that's going to be a problem because a card being worse than it seems is very easy to figure out because you play it and you're like well that was bad then you play it again you're like that's still bad but if you don't play a card you'll never know it's good so it's going to be up to me to play this on webcam a bunch so Vesuvian Duplomancy is three and a blue for an enchantment. Whenever you cast a spell that targets only a single artifact or creature you control, create a token that's a copy of that artifact or creature, except it's not legendary. So at minimum, it slides into Ivy, uh, because Ivy's already duplicating the spells, and this duplicates the creature that you target with the spell. So you get a bonus spell to target Ivy with, and you get a bonus creature to use going forward. So that's just fun. Um, it's also got Wiley Beckert art, who's one of the, I think probably my most, my favorite magic artist at present, and art's fantastic here, so I will definitely pick don't, up a, a don't foil say stuff like that and put that energy out. Anytime we like somebody, 
<laughs> yeah, they, they'll end up being we, a bad person. I don't want to I mean, get milkshake ducked on this guy's art, so. I, I have exchanged a few uh, communications with Wiley uh, this year for reasons that can't be discussed so far. Uh, and she seems very, very lovely. So I'm, I'm hoping that that is true to the core. That nothing weird or or cancelable will occur in future. Uh, all right, so you don't think Shieldred's going to see a lot of plays? Is that what you're saying? I think Shieldred's fine. I I think Vasublin diplomacy is the thing I like about Shieldred is how fair it is. So <laughs> it's a it, it's it's a nutso card. Um, I don't know how much fun the deck is going to be. Certainly, it's the most built deck so far, but it's also been spoiled the longest. When I think about Shieldred as a potential brick, I'm not actually. I don't. I don't actually think she's going to be that important of a commander. I just think she's a crazy ninety-nine card that's going to end up comboing with all sorts of shit. Like just just the fact that anybody's running a wheel type effect. Yeah, it's busted. Like it, it, all that Nekusar stuff that people hated just comes back. Like any deck that that wins by wheeling people just really annoys people. It's the worst kind of mill because you get to hold those cards for a little bit. I also look at it as just being a black value engine on the order of a protection racket or a black market connections, where for one more mana and being vulnerable to creature destruction and wipes and so forth, you get something that's going to interact with your opponents consistently, whether or not you combo with it. Because all of your nasty opponents who are evil people and deserve to die are going to try to draw lots and lots of cards against you, and they're going to pay for that privilege. And whenever you draw a card, you're going to create a net gap in the life totals that works in your favor. And then if you're playing a deck like a Loro or something, it's just going to be busted. This card is, yeah, it's, it makes the really annoying decks more annoying, but it doesn't make any medium decks good. And that, I don't know. I don't like, I don't like when like the big marquee card for the set is just like going to annoy people. Can you picture any mythic here being worth more money than Shieldred in three years? Um, from the base set, I mean, certainly not. This is a lot of just Sulkinar the Tainteds that are going to be $2 in a year. <laughs> All right. How about Sarah Paragon in EDH? I'm pretty excited for this card because I think that in this format, you have a, just a trillion options. It looks to me like a... Uh, comparable Sun Titan for two mana less. I mean, if all it said was you can play a land card from your graveyard, that's, like a flying crucible. Yeah, it's a little bit new for white. This card's very good. I don't know if it'll be worth more than Shieldred, but like, I'm certainly going to be less upset about seeing this across the board for me. It's just like I would like somebody to be able to do their thing better, but not make me do my thing worse. That's the kind of stuff I like in EDH, and I think. I think initially people like the Shieldreds, but I think eventually they end up playing whether like completed type cards and feeling better about it. Um, I love Sarah Paragon a lot. And it's, again, it's something new for White, whereas um, Shieldred, not so much. This is a contender to unseat Shieldred, certainly. Uh, as much as I love Duplomancy, because like Tatsunari and weird decks like that that really love... Lots of ways to make... 
I make a um the the frog that Tatsunari makes. I try to make a non legendary yeah. copy of that. So being able to churn it out a bunch by targeting my creature with uh, an enchantment I can return to my hand seems awesome. Children's a Praetor and all that, mm, and we're yeah. going into a huge Priaxian storyline. So I feel pretty confident she's top top dog, but I don't feel confident that she's the best card. I think that I agree with you that Sarah Paragon has that magical open-ended synergy where it's it doesn't need to be in a particular white deck. It probably just fits in most white decks in EDH because it's going to be very unusual that you're going to be running a deck where you don't want this ability, even if it's just to get back lands. And then you're going to have a whole bunch of other stuff that you're interested in bringing back. It's mana value limited to three or less, but it's not color limited or type limited in any way. So that, you know, that's pretty cool. Like that's very very synergistic with many things currently and many things in the future and it's also an angel and people are still building giada decks so that doesn't hurt either oh yeah the card's bonkers how about silverback elder two triple green five seven whenever you cast a creature spell choose one destroy target artifact or enchantment look at the top five cards of your library you may put a land card from among them onto the battlefield tapped Put the rest on the bottom of your library in a random order. You gain four life. I've played against uh, Lands Matters decks in your hands. Would this make those lists? I personally, I, I have gone to the mat saying modal cards are good, actually. And that a modal card takes up three spots in your deck. Now, you might not play a card that had just that one mode, but anything that's got the uh, the flexibility, you know. Um, this is repeatedly usable. This card is it's pretty bonkers, honestly. I kind of think of this as being like a mini Great Henge. Like, you might get it down for a little less than you drop Henge for, depending on the deck. I mean, if you're playing decks that get four fours and five fives into play in a hurry then hinge is cheaper than this potentially but i think that flexibility is is strong as well and i think all three modes are interesting like even gaining four life can be good against the right strategies and just taking out an artifact every time you cast a creature tends to do, do a lot of work to slow down the table get your mana crypt get your no mercy what get your ristic study get your esper sentinel yeah all that stuff seems good and in a lot of cases you know against say an esper sentinel they don't even get to draw a card off of it because you cast a creature to make that happen yeah people are really frustrated playing against aura shards and this is just a way better aura shards it's easier to kill harder to cast but like it's it's pretty bonkers there's a lot of big, dumb green creatures that all other big, dumb green creatures compete with, and so I'm not mm. confident in this card financially, but I certainly look forward to fooling around with it in a variety of decks. But this, everything that, all those, you're fighting for, like, the the big mana. You're, like, Ancient Green Warden or um, Green Warden of Marasa, I guess, or uh, the Mana Tripler. What's that? Nyx something? Nyx Bloom Agent. Nyx Bloom Agent, yeah. So I feel like, yeah, there's the big dumb green slot, but this has just so much utility mm -hmm. that like, especially if you're like, if you look at the, the pre-cons, what we're getting in those, you know, you're getting all kind of creatures matters decks. People are still playing Jetmere. 
you know, people are going to play Hazazon, and um, there's a lot of, like, Tokens Matters decks, so people really do like to play creatures in green, so I, I don't know. I I think it's got a ton of utility, but again, I think it's probably, unfortunately, overpriced right now, which kind of sucks to say. I mean, I expect it to get very cheap, and and then I'll take a look at the EDH rec numbers and, and make a call on whether it's worth going after. Um, here's a rare that's on my radar. Threats undetected feels underrated to me as a green gifts ungiven that is likely to do a lot of work in this format. Two and a green for sorcery. Search your library for up to four creature cards with different powers and reveal them. An opponent chooses two. You put those back in your library, but you keep the other two. How does this not just let you get a, a quad of redundant combo tasticness? It does. And where no matter what two they put back, you're still comboing. It, it does. Yeah. And they, they even were smart enough to say shuffle them into your library. Yeah. Rather than put them in your graveyard. Which would have been just insane. Yeah. This card's busted. It's just any any card that, that's something on something, you know. Because I made suspicious. a bunch of money on shared summoning, sending those into CK picked up under a dollar and sold for, I don't know, three or four or whatever it was. Yeah. Uh, and that was five mana to go search up two creatures. So Plus doing you had to let three, somebody else do it too. Yeah. And so doing the, you know, doing this where in a deck where the creatures are not necessarily utility, but are probably combo, you're going to get the most value at a higher tier table. But even if you're just at a dirtle table, you could just go grab four utility creatures and let them pick the, the two they want you to have. This this looks very good to me. I su- suspect it's going to rise through the ranks. Yeah, it's currently card underrated at about three bucks. I mean, I it's got to get real low. Like, I think there'll be dollar copies lying around. Is everybody really and- that bad at evaluating magic cards? <laughs> I don't know. People don't seem that excited about this card, so I think it's going to get cheap. Um, one of the other ones, I guess all the tribal lords that we already talked about are all ultra-relevant in EDH. If you're playing those tribes, those lords will be included, so that that contributes to my aforementioned brick Oh, here's uh, a interest. here's a trick. Um, not to... Okay, definitely to interrupt you, but like, you know, yep. in a way Go that ahead. I can get away with it before I forget. Yep. Anytime I interrupt somebody, it's like, I'm going to forget if I don't say this now. If you go to the EDHREP website and click themes, um, you can click the word tribes and it'll bring up a list of all the tribes. So you can see that dragon, there are 28,000 dragon decks versus 951 fungus decks. So if you don't have a conception of like, is this tribe 300 times more popular than another? Maybe it is. Um, So... When you're sort of like, oh, this is a lord, and this is a lord, and this is a lord, you know, well, Look is it up. a Kavu lord, or is it a zombie yeah. lord? Because, like, that stuff really matters. Getting a sense of how the different tribes are played relative to each other can really help you evaluate cycles and which one's going to be important in a cycle. And it can really help you evaluate, you know, are there only 43 horse decks because there's not a horse lord? Or yeah. our horse is just really bad because they're four mana two twos. Who knows? And the good news here is that Elvish, the elves are the third most played tribe. The goblins are the sixth most played tribe. And the merfolk are 16th. So 
probably the elf and the goblin are the two to take a look at overall, because that may well be the ones that see the most constructed play. At least the, at least the goblin lord, I think, uh, I expect to do more work in more formats than the other two. Uh, moving along, Relic of Legends certainly has my attention. This is a cool-looking three-mana uh, rock that just at minimum taps for the stuff you would, would expect it to tap for. And it's pretty high on your list so far. I think it's the fifth play, most reported card so far early on in the set. It ta- You tap any other legendary creature and add one mana of any color. So if you're in a Legends Matters deck and you have two or three Legends out, then this thing can potentially generate four mana a turn. And if you've got some ways to, to untap them based on the mana you just generated, say Freed from the Real or something... I guess you could be tapping and untapping things infinitely for some other effect or reason. Uh, That looks suspiciously like a combo rock to me that is going to do some work. I mean, this is currently like a $3 uncommon. I think people saw what happened to Honor Worn Shaku when they changed the legend rules. And like that, that card, you know, cooled down a little bit because like a lot of the hype was just, you know, oh, this works in a way that was new. I just I, I think that people have caught on to the fact that a three mana rock has to be pretty pushed to have the audacity to exist in a world where we have enough two mana rocks that we do not need three mana rocks. Yeah, this one, it, it, it's got it's powerful and narrow. So they made it justified as an uncommon by making it super narrow you can't tap a legendary permanent you have to tap a legendary creature so you can't just tap all your planeswalkers for a million mana along along similar lines of logic timeless lotus has a mythic mana rock that has the lotus pedigree a five mana casting cost comes in the battlefield tap and then once you untap it taps for wooberg is currently twenty dollars at show sponsor cool stuff inc and over $30 at Card Kingdom, about $30 on TCG Player. Overrated? Underrated? Overpriced at present, I think we all agree, right? This, this has got to get cheaper. I, I think people cut Gilded Lotus for a reason, and I think this is just as clunky as Gilded Lotus, perhaps more. Tapping for Wurberg is super cute. But I think the people that there, I think the majority of people who have played a game of Magic the Gathering um, have done it with no sleeves at a kitchen table, and they see this and they think it's the absolute best card ever printed. There's there's something to be said. I think I think people who are just like EGH players are going to be like, mm, this is not as good as I thought. But I I think everybody forgets that. 63 card unsleeved casual is the majority of magic that's played and those people don't have twitter accounts or tournament results so it's really hard to track what they're into but trend wise you can definitely see when you know colossus of acros is like a three dollar card and you expected it to be a bulk rare it's just stuff just kind of happens those people still do manage to type timeless lotus into google and go to the first website it takes them to and buy this <laughs> stuff. So, like, those people don't participate in anything except the secondary market. 
Derek, if you're guessing the price of Foil Extended Art Timeless Lotus in three years, what number pops into your head? Three years, I would say $70. Ooh. See, I, I think that's pretty aggressive. I This is currently 20 to 30. I expect this ends up 8 to 12. There's, first of all, LOTV is... The only of the bales in this set, so that's going to chomp a bunch of EV. And then you've got two or three other mythics that I think are going to see more play that might see significantly more standard play uh, at minimum. And yeah, so I think foil extended art, I want to say 40 to 50 in three years. And a lot of a lot of this depends is on how these EDH rec numbers shape up in three to six months. I mean, if you'd asked me if I thought chromatic orrery was going to be nineteen dollars in a year, I would have yeah. said hell no. Yeah, yep, yep. But here right. it is. Chromatic it's not orrery. a good card, but it's twenty dollars. I mean, the foil extended arts of that are at forty-two, and that was a rare. And- no, that was a mythic. Oh yeah, you're right. It's, yeah. it's a summer mythic, isn't it? Uh, mm-hmm. I'm trying. So that's M21, and that's two years out. So you add another year, I think that pushes. Let's see if, and it's it's been pretty flat. So another year goes up to maybe fifty or sixty. Lotus the foil on that is mind. trending down super hard, and the non-foil is trending up, which means actual players are playing it. Um, this month, actually, the prices flopped. Where foil's worth mm-hmm. less than non-foil now. On orrery. So yeah, that tells you like it's gonna you need people actually playing it. But chromatic orrery, there's nothing collectible about. Telling someone you got a foil lotus is a you know different story. That's a thing. Yeah, I, I think this is the kind of card I'm gonna look for in Japan to get real cheap because Japan won't care about it at all. But eh, I'm not sure about that. Give them all sometimes, your jeweled amulets. Yeah, sometimes like being associated with like magic history, like the word lotus might be enough to keep it expensive in Japan. So also the fact that they are shipping to the U.S. again via Harayuya. So we'll have to see how it goes. Um, at present, I'm just holding off. Like I have no intention of touching this card until I think it gets to the right price, and that's not right now. Jason, do you have anything else that jumps out at you in the main set? that you think is going to be widely played in EDH? Um, I'm suspicious of Thran Portal. Okay. It's it, it's just so, such a weird card. Um, and it's a gate, which we needed. Like, we're going to continue to get enough gates to make Nine Fingers Keen playable, so that is such a minor point. Um, but it's it's non-trivial. I don't know. I, I Thran Portal is a card that's two fifty on uh, TCG Player currently and eight bucks on Card Kingdom. Who's right? I don't know. Yeah, I think this one gets. I think this one gets cheap. Although I have lost a gate decks in EDH in the hands of pro traders recently. One of, the, one of the other it's ones. It's rare that, though. Like, yeah, collector boosters thing. have smashed so many cards that would be a four dollar rare into like just complete bulk it's it's hard to say this needs to be very good but it currently is played rather a lot it's in the top 24 cards i think it's 20th so i don't know 
If I was going to pick a car, a mythic that I thought think think is going to get cheap and then sneak up over time, I'm looking at Weatherlight completed. It's a five-five flying vehicle that has no way to pilot, and you have to put counters on it to get it there. And along the way, you're scrying, and then eventually you're drawing cards. But really, this is just going to end up in all of the uh, vehicle decks in EDH that can give it a pilot cost, up, yeah, of like one or two or whatever, and then it's going to be really, really good in those decks. Um, and it's also got like cool story beats associated with it. So I think it's this will probably get cheap and then be a sneaky card over two to four years or something like that. All right, let's move over to the pre-cons. There's some pretty cool cards over there as well that I know we wanted to talk about. The most reported so far in EDH Racket are the pre-con cards that will also show up in the Collector Boosters uh, is the Reaver Cleaver. Uh, equipment I think we, you and I can both agree, J- Jason, did not really need to exist. I mean, they've told us that we're going to contend with treasure tokens the rest of our lives and we need to get used to it. <laughs> I mean, I'm certainly putting this straight into Corvold uh, because it gives Corvold trample and then he hits people for a bunch and then I get a whole bunch more treasure tokens. So that's gross. And play it alongside Old Gnawbone and Ancient Copper Dragon and all the other silly ways to get more treasure. And yeah, it looks pretty good. Um, We've also got the Peregrine Dynamo. Uh, How did th- that was my card. roller derby name. <laughs> this is a three mana one five for, and it's a construct which could easily be very relevant in two months when we get to the Brothers War. I would imagine we're getting a whole bunch of constructs, um, maybe even a construct lord. This is a one five with haste for three mana for one tap copy target activated or triggered ability you control from another legendary source that's not a commander. You may choose new targets for the copy. The most obvious use here is that you can use this with Mox Amber or a Timeless Lotus or a Planeswalker in, say, an Atraxa build to double up their uh, loyalty ability. This is broadly applicable, and it's just a question of how quickly people catch on. Yeah. I... People kind of see that it seems like a worse version of, uh, you know, some Stryonic Resonator, Stryonic Resonator, something like that. Um, and maybe it is. But I like that it's I like that it's one five. Yeah. It's got a fat butt, so it can block some stuff. And that for four mana, it does something right away. Yep. Haste on a giant slow creature is very funny to me. But it's a dynamo. It's charged up and ready to be a poor man's tyrannic resonator i don't know i this will definitely never get taken out of the pre-con it's in so that's gonna <laughs> that's that's always a problem anytime a card is too good to get taken out of the pre-con um it just seems like people either just buy the pre-cons to play with them or they just sell just the they like throw away all the packaging and sell you like a brick of the decks for like you know 35 bucks each in a bunch you know in two years and then you get to be like oh well all these other cards are worth money and apparently peregrine dynamos five bucks so i got all those for free it's gonna be one of those cards i think 
financially it probably gets cheap, very, very cheap, and it's relatively narrow, so whether I brick it or not will depend on how cheap it gets. If I'm picking between this and say something like two-headed Hellkite, I think I'm going leaning towards Hellkite. This is a one Wooberg 5-5 five, five dragon flying menace haste. Whenever two-headed Hellkite attacks, draw two cards. I mean, this thing pulls you ahead on resources the second it hits play. So I, I don't see how this doesn't earn a slot in Ur-Dragon Ur and all of the other five-color dragon builds, Tiamat, etc. Yeah, this is a hot card. Even the art looks gorgeous. And, there, and presumably there's an extended art version of this in the collector boosters, and I would imagine those will end up being worth money. So I'm definitely keeping an eye on how cheap they get. Currently it's at 15 bucks pre-order on TCG Player, but Card Kingdom has some copies at 4 bucks. I don't hate that. This could be a future $10 plus card. It's very good. The, the reason that this wouldn't is because they just made so many better cards that this like is obsolete. And for a dragon to be obsolete, that's pretty tough. Or they'll just reprint it every year like Zatalpa. <laughs> all, all of the, out of all the commanders that are available through Box Topper Action and Dominaria Reunited, so far the one that's mo been most reported by a wide margin by at least 50% more than the next closest is Torwaki the Younger. Three black red for a 3-3 human archer reach lifelink. If another source you control would deal non-combat damage to a permanent or player, it deals that much damage plus one to that permanent or player instead. And whenever you cast an instant or sorcery spell, Torwaki the Younger deals two damage to any target. Uh, so... It's a Tor brand deck. It's a Tor brand deck that you could run Pestilent Spirit and Sedgemore Witch in. I'm super into it. I'm not going to build it because it's super like linear and obvious, but like there's no surprise that this is the number one deck right now. And then we've got Tetsuo, Imperial Champion in second, Hazazan, Shaper of Sand in third, Jared Carthalian, Carthalian? Jared Carthalian, let's go with that. Uh, five color commander that is the face commander of the five color deck. Only been reported 53 times so far, so in 7th place overall. How do you feel about Jared's chances longer term? Over Dehada? Sure. Um, I don't love Jared, I guess. If this, if this is like, if you're doing a Planeswalker deck, like, cool. You get a 5-color Planeswalker deck finally. I think that's pretty cool. Um, I just... Uh, I don't know. It doesn't have to be good to be fun. That's the cool thing about EDH cards. I'm so like wrapped up in trying to evaluate whether something's good. I never think about whether people care. So like yeah. Jared doesn't have to be good to get built a bunch because people, you know, people weren't using Child of Alara in EDH for like three years because they wanted Child of Alara to blow up everybody's creatures. They needed a five-color creature in their command zone. And if you're building five-color planeswalkers, what are you going to use? Morophon? No, you're going to use Jared. So it's it's creating, it's solving a problem, you know, that, you know, that <laughs> it, it solves a problem. That, that What's the commander for a five-color planeswalker deck? Well, here it is. And I think that matters a lot. How do we feel about mana cannons long-term? given that Card Kingdom currently has 50 cent copies. This is an enchantment for two and a red. Whenever you cast a multicolored spell, 
Mana Cannon steals X damage to any target, where X is the number of colors that spell is. So starting with two color spells, you're doing two damage, you know, up to five damage. Obviously, this does nothing in monocolored builds. And if even if you're in two and three color builds, if most of your cards are still single color, doesn't do anything there either. So you want to be strongly running gold cards to leverage this. But then it seems to me like this does a lot of work. Um, it says any target and anytime I see any target, I'm disappointed because like, you know, that people are just going to play boring stuff like impact tremors. This will never be as impactful as impact tremors. It's just, it's so, it's going to deal so little damage. Like even if you're, even if you're casting Iridian Maelstrom and stuff like that, you're just, you're doing five to a target one time. I don't know. It just... You understand what I'm saying? Like it's it's like a bad pandemonium most of the time. Impact Tremors is currently three dollars market price. This is whenever a creature enters the battlefield under your control, it deals one damage to each opponent. So very good in go wide builds, uh, things like uh, Jetmir or Ginny Fay. And then the secret layer version of that that had the D and D art is currently eight dollars. Uh, I don't know about this. There's there's a lot of multicolored decks running around. It may be too niche, but if I saw some at 25 cents or something, I'd probably buy a brick and hope that every multicolor deck from there on out chose to run the card. I mean, this is currently... It's currently, what, 14th most played card in the set with preliminary data, the big asterisk. Yeah. Uh, but I, I, I could be wrong, but... If a card's played a lot in a precon, it means people aren't taking it out of their lists mentally. Versus like, I don't know. I I think if you start with a hundred cards, you don't take this out, but if you start with zero, I can't see myself putting it in, even in a five color deck. It just I, I I just don't like the idea of like, oh, three to a target. I don't like picking targets. There's okay. something social about having to pick a target a bunch of times that I don't like. I would like to just deal everybody a damage and then not have to think about who feels like they're getting picked on, right? Like anything that forces me to do political math makes me not like the card. Is everybody like me? I don't know. So as an EDH player, I don't love this card, but like clearly people think it's okay so far. What about... What about Obsidian Obelisk, the two-mana rock that comes into play tapped, taps for colorless, or one mana of any color, but only if you're casting a multicolored spell? It's more narrow than people think, but um, it's solid. The thing about the thing about mana rocks is people, outside the obvious ones that are like reprinted into dust, I think people tend to play the ones that they have. You know, so I don't think someone's going to go through and jam an obsidian obelisk in all of their decks, but I think like if they build one and they have one on their desk, they'll play it. This it just seems like sort of a card that you're like, yeah, okay. You know, there's no real like multicolor tribal to see what kind of cards people are playing in multicolor tribal decks. But if you go, again, shilling so hard for our data. If you go to EDH Rec, you go to cards, and you go by color, and you go multicolor, you can kind of see what rocks people are running in those multicolor decks. And if you go yeah. to cards, top cards, 
the past two years, uh, you can, you know, you can kind of see people are just running signets and stuff like that. And talismans, yeah. And so the question is, is there advantage, a particular advantage to having access to all the colors in your deck as opposed to yeah. signet talismans covering two colors at a how time? Many, how many colors I, does your deck need to be for Obsidian Obelisk to be better than Golgari Signet? And I think the answer I is mean, four. And probably four or five. I think it's the kind of card like Rock I would run in Atraxa because of how varied my mana costs are between running all the best planeswalkers. Um, but if I was in a three-color build that was largely green-blue and had a splash of black or something, then it's way less attractive because I'm going to be able to handle that with just the regular mana base almost regardless of what rock I drop. All right. Anything, anything else jump out at either of you that you think needs to be uh, flagged as a potential brick or something that people will underestimate? So I'm curious how low you think Shivan Devastator will get the hyped, well, I should say high-priced originally dragon fly in haste. And when it comes into the battlefield, it gets X plus one one counters. The mana value is uh, one red pip and then X. So if you have a bunch of mana, you can dump it in, have a big flying haste, beefy creature. Uh, started at 30, it's down to 12 or so. Curious how low you think it'll go. I think this... I, I'm... Go ahead. go ahead, Jason. Oh, I think this card's bad. Yeah. I I don't think this card makes any of the dragon decks because it doesn't do a thing other than be what it is. They, they don't care about casting 2-2 two, two, and 3-3s three, and getting in early in EDH. Over in Standard, maybe it has a role to play. But if you compare this to something like Goldspan Dragon and what this does on, on five mana versus that, or before that, what was the one in Amonkhet block that uh, deals four if you tap it for a turn? Yeah, and you can ex- ex- exalt yeah. it. Or not exalt, the, exert. Both of those dragons are much more impactful to controlling the board um, or building resource advantage than Devastator, which is basically just a Hydra with wings. Uh, this may see plain standard. I'd be very surprised if it sees much play anywhere else. And I'm actually surprised to see it in the top three reported for the set for EDH. I think that's largely reflective of so many people building Ur-Dragon this summer on the back of Baldur's Gate. But I don't think this card makes that deck ahead of, for instance, the Wooburg draw two dragon that we just saw. There's no question in my mind which of the two I would put in the deck. And that deck's getting thick. Like, Cliff runs Ur-Dragon, as do two or three other pro traders that we play with regularly. And the cuts are not easy in that deck anymore. Like, Cliff, Cliff says he's not even running any non-dragons as creatures. And this is a this is a dragon-flavored Hydra. This is a Hydra yeah. flying. It's not a, a, a yeah, yeah. Hydra-flavored dragon, you know, so... Because almost all the other dragons in that deck do silly, silly things. Yeah. And, and this doesn't And do they it. synergize with each other. This doesn't really synergize with what you're doing at all unless it's like when you play a dragon. So I think this is better in Hydra decks than it is in... Uh... Yeah, I'm not super excited about it. Um, I think Ellis Ilcore Sadistic Pilgrim is going to see shit tons of play. Um, it's only an uncommon, but I, whatever this gets down to... It's almost it's probably a buy. Like currently you can get this at Card Kingdom or CSI for fifty cents. That might even be fine. Like if, if there's bricks of this of twenty-five cents on opening weekend, I'm in for a hundred. This is a two-two death touch for white and a black. It's a Phyrexian and a core and a cleric. 
So relevant in all those tribes. And keep in mind that all of the sets for the next six months are all Phyrexian related. And there's four of them because there's like one extra standard set next year or whatever. Um, whenever another creature enters the battlefield under your control, you gain a life. Whenever another creature you control dies, each opponent loses a life. It's card's in the insane. Decks that, it's a better yeah, suture that, priest. Right. In the decks that do this stuff, this will always be played as long as you're in those two colors. And given what you're trying to do, you probably are in those two colors. Yeah. So I mean, yeah. It, I, I, I'm looking to I'm looking to brick this as cheaply as possible. I mean, what's the and, cheapest uh, blood artist has ever been? Right. Like, what's the cheapest? I mean, a lot of these cheap. aristocrats cards. Like, it just. But, but Blood Artist is the kind of thing that sees frequent reprints, and this will probably see no reprint for a long time. Like, Blood Artist has said eight printings, and market price is still over, is close to $3, 2 to $3. And the Secret Layer version is six sixty five, and there's a... There was no foils of that. So yeah, pretty solidly at $6. So... Seems very reasonable to snap these off 25 to 50 cents and hope that you can buy less than for a dollar down the road. Do you still like foils? Oh, yeah. I, I play foil extended arts all the time. Oh, yeah. I, I'm, I'm such a big fan of extended arts because, like, I hate curly foil cards and I, I just don't like guessing which foils people are going to care about. But it seems like all the extended arts are just always the better play because they're the same price for like six months and then it's like oh yeah this one quadrupled and the price of the uh the regular version went down it's so predictable i love it i have an article coming out soon that's like seven thousand words long or something which basically can be summarized as regular cards make you more money but the the regular card which is not news to many vendors in the space who have always said such I've made tons of money on foils and premiums over the years, but the percentage gains tend to be better on regular, primarily because they are cheaper to begin with. Because it you cannot get the kinds of returns on a $0.25 cent card going to $5 on a $50 card. You just can't. So if you're looking at ROI strictly as percentage return, your regular cards are always going to beat if you can find the things like the ledger shredder that are going to go 10 times because they're underestimated. Is there anything in Dominary United, Oko, that in any way gives you a ledger shredder vibe that we haven't already talked about? No, I don't think so. I mean, it's there's some solid cards there, but I, I think, honestly, the Leyline's Binding is probably the thing I'm most excited about. Um, obviously, Liliana for Pioneer, but that's not new. Otherwise, a lot of value cards, but nothing that seems like it's going to break a format. Um, that said, we said that about the last set, and here we are with Ledger Shredder dominating everything. The other one from that set was Unlicensed Hurst, where I just I was like, okay, that's that's a cyborg card for Pioneer or whatever. It'll see some play, but I, I, I'm curious whether Silex ends up pulling a Hurst impersonation. Yeah, I mean, the fact that Silex, I mean, anything that's a mythic that could see play can always go crazy. Um, you know, it's just one of those things where it doesn't take a lot uh, compared to any of these rares. It takes quite a bit to move prices. So, yes, I could see Silex doing something. Even Soul of Wingrace, we talked about briefly, if it gets tested, it top eights, a tur- you know, first weekend tournament, people want to buy in because of hype. I could see things spiking there because it's a mythic. I assume it's a mythic, actually. Don't it is, it is. Sure. Yeah, and then looking at some of the others, 
yeah i mean the others are they're fine but you know whatever so we'll see the ev has to go somewhere at least on the magic online scene paper you know obviously a lot of it will go into edh oh i have two more i just want to mention quickly and then we'll wrap up rift liberated primeval uh, five five flying war two other dragons you control have war two at the beginning of your end step if a creature or a planeswalker an opponent controlled was dealt excess damage this turn create a dragon that's going on all the dragon decks and that card will be worth money down the road yeah that's a cool card and then the other one that jumps out at me as probably being a bit of a sleeper that will take some time to get there is shauna or Shayna, Purifying Blade, which is Bant Colors for a Human Warrior 3-3 lifelink. At the beginning of your end step, you may pay X. If you do draw X cards, X can't be greater than the amount of life you gain this turn. That seems like a fun commander to build. I don't think it's as financially relevant as something like Rith, but I was surprised to see it not very like near the top of the list for the built commanders. Uh, it's the sixth most built right now. Yeah. I mean, what's it what's it going to get built more than though? Everything in the top five is is really good. That Joara Ageless Innovator <laughs> is so cool. What a oh yeah, Joyra. They were talking about on Command Zone the other day, and it looked like there was that 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 looks like the most busted <laughs> of of the commanders here for sure. And Soul Windgrace and EDH is very interesting. Like yeah, what has. Outside of EDH, it's it's kind of dirtily, but dirtle's what we do in EDH, and like this is it's just a, a machine. Dis, well, and, discard and, and, a land card, uh, put a get back your a life from the loam trigger on the stack for a colors and a red. It's absurd. Like you can you can just swap Lord Windgrace for Soul of Windgrace and run this more or less the same deck, right? In a couple uh, you tweets. could, but um, I'm actually building a Jund Blink deck. <laughs> Because sort of I'm certainly gonna... home and hearth blinks this. So when you hit, you get a land. And then you can blink this. It's amazing. You yeah, don't yeah, even yeah. have to have Soul of Windgrace be the creature that's equipped with the sword. You can blink any of your creatures. Nobody read sort of hearth and home because nobody cares about protection from white and green, I guess. If I was going to guess which two were most popular in the CDH crowd, I would say it's going to be Joyra and Soul of Windgrace. Yeah, it's kind of funny that Zer, you know, compared to past Zers. Uh, I don't know. It's, One, it's not quite as, as brutal because, you know, you're not tutoring. Yeah. One card we didn't talk about that I think could be good down the line as we get more clerics. Shadow Rite Priest. Uh, two one black one colorless other uh, it's the cleric lord and this one if you pay five and sack it uh, two black three colorless you search uh, sack another cleric you search your library for any black creature card put that onto the battlefield and shuffle um, obviously black be the reanimation <clears throat> expertise with things like archon of cruelty I could see that if we got some wraparound uh, being something that might see play but I think that's down the line. Needs a lot of support. This card's cool. Yeah, it's got a heavy activation card, but be, but being able to tutor for and put into play mm-hmm. a black creature at the cost of sacrificing a cleric just seems pretty bonkers. And it's a two-two lord rather than the one ones that many of them, many others are too. I'm not a cop lover, despite my brother being one, but Urtai Resurrected is probably going to be the commander from this set I build first. That is the biggest cop deck you've ever seen. When it enters the battlefield, choose up to one, and it's got flash. 
3-2 for 4 mana. Counter target spell, activated ability, or triggered ability. Its controller draws a card. Destroy another target creature or planeswalker. Its controller draws a card. And then you just build it with things like Notion Thief, etc. that steal the draws away. That is going to be a much hated deck that will get you kicked off the table pretty quick. <laughs> That's what we're going for, right? <laughs> Every once in a while. Pull something out that gets you knocked out first so you can go get a snack. Uh, pretty cool set. Are we all agreed? Dominary United, they uh, hit all the necessary notes for this plane. I said I was never buying cases of collector boosters again after Kamigawa, and I bought cases of collector boosters in this set because they're <laughs> Legends cards. I'm going to put them on a shelf, and then in like like two years, I'll be like, oh yeah, the serial numbers on this say it could have a Legends card. I'll let them play the Glyph of Destruction lottery. There's a bunch of random commons and commons and rares we didn't even talk about here that are probably going to be worth like more than your average commons and commons and rares. Dominaria was a it. good set, and it didn't really seem like it in, during preview season. I think this is yeah. a good set for the only format that matters financially. Yeah, 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 yeah. Agree fully. All right. Well, th- big thanks to Jason for joining Derek and I back on cast for our set review of Dominaria United and Dominaria's Commander cards. Jason, where can folks find you online? If you go to Jason Yalt on Twitter, I have a link tree that links to all the projects I do on the internet. You may be aware that I'm a writer for the website mtgprice.com, but I also write for Cool Stuff Inc., where I write the 75% EDH column. I am a member of the Brainstorm Brewery MTG Lifestyle Podcast, a podcast called The Cult of Films on the They Said We Said YouTube Network. And I am the content manager for EDH Rec and CommandersHerald.com. And perhaps soon the newly launched Fabric.gg, which does not have articles. Could it in the future? Who knows? We think that flesh and blood is something that uh, will not supplant magic, but will supplement it, especially as magic seems to focus on the casual aspect. And uh, flesh and blood only seems to be doubling down on being a game for competitive players who feel orphaned by Magic the Gathering, you know, not having tournaments during a pandemic. So um, all those websites are are super cool. I'm really proud of the work I'm doing on Commander's Herald in particular. EDH Rec seems to be taking care of itself. Uh, So I'm busy. I'm entrenched in the Magic community, but uh, I play a lot of EDH. I play every Wednesday on twitch.tv slash brainstormbrewery. All those links are on my link tree. Jason Yalt on Twitter. Thanks so much for reading my column on MTG Price. I assume most of you <laughs> appreciate that. It's been really gratifying. And MTG Price, I think, is the longest job I've ever had. Oh, wow. That's pretty cool. The uh, You just reminded me that Disney just announced they're launching a Pokemon competitor next year. But I guess we'll, Derek and I will tackle that next week. Uh, Oko, where can people find you online? Yeah, I'm Derek the Dark Mage, and you can find me on Twitter at Oko Assassin and uh, occasional articles on mtgprice.com. You can all find me on Twitter at mtgcritic, as well as via my occasional articles on mtgprice.com. I'd also like to remind our listeners to check out the mtgprice.com Pro Trader service for just $9.99 a month or $109.99 per year. You can get early access to this podcast, fantastic articles by the best MTG finance minds in the business, low-cost group buys, and a super active Discord forum that will drive better returns and save you money playing Magic the Gathering.
Once again, MTG Fast Finance is proudly sponsored by Cool Stuff, Inc., where you can find all sorts of cool, nerdy stuff in stock, including all the best in Magic the Gathering singles, sealed products, and a plethora of other collectibles. Use promo code FINANCE5, that's the number 5, during checkout at www.coolstuffinc.com to save 5% on your order and support this podcast. That brings us to the end of this episode of MTG Fast Finance. As always, enjoy the discussion tonight, James. Thanks for having me on. And thank you again to Jason Alt and Derek, and we'll see all of you next week on episode 340 of MTG Fast Finance.